0: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint and our first title is Is There Life After Death? Thinking Aloud
1: Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist
0: Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is The Making of a Paranormal Investigator. With me today, here in Albuquerque, is Robert Bigelow. Robert is the founder of the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies. He also founded the National Institute for Discovery Science. and He was the recipient of millions of dollars in federal government money for a research program called the Advanced Aerospace Weapons System Application Program. Robert is responsible for millions of dollars in Grants and gifts to people working in the paranormal community. And I myself have the recipient of the Bigelow Institute's grant, not a grant, contest for the best essay for about evidence for survival after death and when I received that award I acknowledged Robert for doing more probably than any other person to awaken people to the evidence for life after death and for stimulating the research community so it's an honor for me to be with you today Robert thank you for coming to Albuquerque thank you Jeffrey you know and and I kind of
1: look at you as the godfather of the all the entire field, you know, of consciousness studies. So you're a bit intimidating sitting here, and my humble little little self here, and being being interviewed by such a famous
0: person as yourself. Well, I can sort of feel the same way. <laughs> you are an intimidating figure in in your own right. I think for many people. Robert, but what we're going to do now is talk about your early years, how you became the person who you now are. and I'm grateful uh, and I want to let our viewers know that we're going to be conducting several interviews while you're here in Albuquerque. This is the first one. We'll be talking quite a bit about your investigations, We I didn't even mention in the introduction, the Bigelow Aerospace Corporation, your interest in space exploration and your interest in the paranormal and how they come together, but let's start out with your humble childhood growing up in Las Vegas at a time when the city, which is now over three million people, had just a few thousand.
1: Yeah. When I was, uh, I was born there, and you know, at that time there might have been twenty-some thousand, maybe twenty-five thousand. I was blessed to be, to be uh, growing up in that environment. There were so many things that were so interesting in the 40s and in the 50s. <clears throat> you know, um, That's back when uh, so many of the atomic bombs were going off above ground. So all of us that are still around, uh, that lived there at that time, have seen a lot of mushroom clouds, and um, we were let out in the schoolyard to go see them if they were afternoon shots. You know, a lot of the shots were at night or early morning so that the winds were were um, mild or, or non-existent at that time. Those uh, crackers were phenomenal to watch. Usually the kilotons was between uh, maybe 10 or 12 kilotons to 150 mm-hmm. max in that kind of range. And there were over 700 shots above and below ground. So... We were used to the tremors and to the the quakes of them, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, a lot of the houses that had plaster ceilings always had a crack running down their living room, you know, because the plaster would eventually crack with the constant shaking like that. Of course, Nellis Air Force Base was there, and that was a very uh, active uh, air base. And uh, back in that time, they would break the sound barrier. And at that time, the protocols for for not doing that just weren't either enforced that stringently or they didn't exist. So you'd hear this, bam, boom, you know, and I'd be out digging a foxhole or something in my backyard, which I, I built a lot of, uh, I built a two-story treehouse, you know, uh, in, uh, in a lot of foxholes and things. And so uh, it was a great time to grow up. Uh, you could take your BB gun and go shooting anywhere. Uh, I lived about... Two miles from downtown Las Vegas, which was out in the country, that was out in the out in the you know out in the country. Mm-hmm. There were other houses around, but um, in ten minutes in a car, you could be out where nobody was. Mm-hmm. You know, now it takes you an hour to get across the valley yeah. if, if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's not work time, so it was a it was a fascinating place to grow up, and night and day difference. The, today's environment has no none of the characteristics of of what would excite a kid coming along with that came stories of uh, my friends of mine seeing ufo's they were they or they their parents and um those were not uncommon I, and I, I don't think it was coincidence there were exploding these huge these huge bombs and uh et ufo's would have an interest in in that you know of course it was
0: it was a, a fun time for a kid. It was really great. Yeah. And as I recall, uh, you were able to drive at a very young age and even owned a car at a young age. I did. And I got away with a, with a superb con job
1: on my parents. I had friends that had motorcycles, motor scooters and motorcycles. And they were always having a broken hand or leg or something like that, right, or arm. And I said, you know, look, Dad. Uh, I don't want a motorcycle because I want something around me. I want something heavy around me. And and we we had been, he had a World War II Jeep. And since I was a kid, I got used to driving the, the standard, the three-speed shift on the Jeep. And um even when I was about 11, I was alone in the seat. He would be next to me, but I, I wasn't sitting on his lap or anything. I would be alone driving that Jeep, you know. And so, when I was thirteen, <clears throat> I convinced him, and I think you know it, it was logical that you well know, the kid doesn't want to ride a bicycle anymore, you know, and his friends all can go tens of miles, which was huge, mm-hmm. you know, or fifty miles in one day uh, easily on a, on a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. So that was a big deal when you're graduating from a bicycle. So he let me buy a car, and I wanted something different. I wanted. You know, I've always been a little different, weird in some kind of ways, you know, maverick in some kind of ways. So, I wanted a Model A. So, I spent every dime I had, $175, I'd saved up. And I had my, my first job was uh, during the summer when I was 13, so some of the money came from that job. It was in an ice cream store, like a Dairy Queen, only it wasn't a brand, it was a mom and pop kind of thing. And... um uh, and so I made hamburgers and, and uh, stuff like that, you know, uh, hot dogs was in the part of the menu. And um, I loved that car. Absolutely loved it. And he, he got enthused with it, too, because for Christmas he gave me a brand new candy apple uh, paint job mm-hmm. on the Model A. And it had a rumble seat in the back mm-hmm. and four-cylinder. And he also gave me a new leather upholstery mm-hmm. job for the car. So that was a dream to me. That was, that was fantastic. And you're 13 years old. I'm 13 years old. By the time I was 14, I was driving all over, all over the place, all over town, all around the neighborhoods to my friends, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, <clears throat> thinking kind of nothing of it, you know, I thought, you know, I didn't get in any accidents or anything like that because I knew how to handle the car.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, later we put a V8 in it. Oh my! yeah, yeah, we put a v eight in it, uh like a forty eight mark or something like that you know that that had um i think we milled the heads and we may have bored and stroked it, and we put on a couple of of uh i think two two or three deuces carburetors on there, you know. You made it into a hot rod. You know, and I think my father was living through me at mm-hmm. the time because he grew up really poor where they actually would have a meal. He and his sisters would sit down and they would have a meal that would be you know, you count how many peas and how many carrot pieces you have on your plate, mm-hmm. you know. And so, so he never had anything like that. He would even dream of it, you know. And um, his father <clears throat> was a Prospector, always out and an inventor um, his his father Leroy Bigelow <coughs> was uh, uh an inventor in different kinds of things that would process gold to be able to either through different kinds of means of of um, processing fines Mm -hmm. and winding up with the dust or the the you know nuggets or whatever most of the time he didn't find anything Mm -hmm. but he was always looking and so most of the time uh, there wasn't any money you know to support the family so my dad was really enthused and with me because i was the only kid i i didn't have any siblings no brothers or sisters Mm -hmm. and so uh i was blessed because we always played a lot of sports together and uh did things together out in the desert looking for pottery or arrowheads or caves or anything a rattlesnake whatever mm-hmm. you know so uh any interesting rocks or whatever so it was I was blessed so, so it was a happy childhood oh yeah
0: it was it was uh it was hard to explain how, how neat it was mm-hmm. yeah At the same time, there were UFO activities. It was very rare, I suppose, that the people in Las Vegas saw all of these nuclear explosions. I grew up in Wisconsin. Of course, I've never seen an atomic explosion. Uh, But your parents or your grandparents, I should say, your grandparents who lived nearby, had a uFO encounter uh, when you were a very young child yeah they they lived we lived right next
1: door immediately adjacent to my my mother 's mother and father my my maternal grandparents, and uh, he had given his two daughters each an acre right next to them, so my dad and mother built a house on the acre that he gave, gave my mother and it was a blessing to have my grandparents there cuz they were neat people mm-hmm. so in 1947 i had just turned 3 years old and um it was in about early june of that year they had a really close super close encounter and there was nothing to do in las vegas except <clears throat> so go for ice cream cones you know or take drives someplace on you know if you're not working during the week mm-hmm. you know so um, so they had they had left in uh, a later afternoon, and they went up a remote road uh, going up to Mount Charleston, up to Kyle Canyon. And um, they were coming back down, and they saw this light, and it was kind of glowing. And uh, they thought it maybe it was a plane, and it maybe then it kept glowing more and getting larger and thought, well, maybe it's on fire and it was coming toward them mm-hmm. and it got to where it began to be obvious it was really coming toward them and they pulled off to the side of the road and just as they stopped the car the the object filled the entire windshield up and then at the split last second they, they could see as they're trying to duck, they could see this thing just take off mm-hmm. you know, lightning quick and um, I never knew this story until I was about 10 or 11 years old I didn't know it. I was three at the time it happened. Yeah. I didn't know the story until I was ten or eleven and so um, I did remember that uh, my mom told me the story and she said they were late getting back into town.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I said, well, why? And she said, well, it must have taken your grandfather some time to to get his composure, you know, after that kind of experience. So. Um, uh, but that's kind of relevant because, you know, if you do abduction research and so forth, it's is missing time is important. Part of the calculus of determining did an event happen and all that. So then I went to my grandfather and asked him about the story and he wouldn't talk about it. He wouldn't talk to me, which wasn't like him, but he wouldn't talk about it and then i went to my grandmother and she barely talked about it she just mentioned just a little bit not not much of anything mm. like it was just taboo or they were scared to 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 talk about it or something and i and i think you know the the psychology of that must have been so impactful of that event happening and i kind of maybe just kind of chalked it up to that mm. um so that was one one time that that happened and uh, then later my mother was with them during daytime and they saw a craft over over what was called Sheep Mountain and they were in that vicinity and um it was large and then it just disappeared it didn't it didn't move it was just gone type of thing so back in those years those are my two family experiences aside from friends of mine <clears throat> said all oh, you know I'm not supposed to tell you My dad's going to kill me, but here's what happened, you know, on our way back from hunting. You know, at night, we came back through Alamo, and here's what we saw that landed alongside the road. And I was begging my dad and and the other fellow, don't get out of the car. We had no truck. We were riding in a truck back from our hunting trip. And and, uh,
0: so stories like that stick with you. So, you had those stories around you, people around you, but you also, as you explained to me, had a series of, we could call them recurring dreams, but there might have been more than dreams.
1: They could have been, I I just, uh, you know, I don't have any evidence that they were anything other than dreams. It was just, they were peculiar because it was the same damn dream about five or six times over the course of months. So, I'd be in my little bedroom, on my twin bed, laying down sideways. And I'm looking at three figures in monk type of robes, or hoods. I couldn't see faces, appendages, anything. And there's three of them there facing me. And I'm thinking, what do you want? And why are you here? There was no other kind of communication at all. And I'm not even doing this out loud in my dream. I'm just thinking this, right? And the dream's over. Well, what a stupid dream to have! Like, can it be something nice where you're having the biggest, you know, banana split in history? Can
2: Can it be be a a big? That would be a good
1: dream, right? So I just chalked it up to crazy kind of dreams. But there was nothing in there was nothing in the in the media. Uh, We didn't get television until uh, I was about ten or eleven years old, and I had these dreams when I was six or seven or eight, somewhere in that seven or eight time frame. And, uh, and ditto for comic books, Mm -hmm. which I was an avid reader of comic books, but there was, there were, there were no characters, Mm -hmm. uh, that were drawn like that. Mm -hmm. You know, there weren't any. And, uh, at least that I ever had, that I ever read, didn't know about them.
0: So, so what it suggests to me is that very likely your, your grandparents had more of an encounter than they remember and that. Uh, it's possible that some entities from another realm were watching you ever since childhood. It's remotely possible, but and we have, you know, as
1: researchers, we we discover uh, historically that that kind of lineage, that kind of those experiences, occur in generational uh, families where you may have grandparents and then parents and then children. That mm-hmm. it, it's, it's kind of close together like that, but um, I I don't know. I just
0: just chalk it up to… We don't have to make anything of it, but there came a time in your life prior to the uh, inauguration of your formal research projects, then the development of NIDS, where you began a a serious investigation of uh, UFO and and UFO contactees uh, and To my knowledge, this is something that the world doesn't know about you. Well, at the
1: time when I was 10 to 12 year old time frame Mm -hmm. in there, my father began to read Mm -hmm. about UFOs and and he would read books that were authored by military people, Mm -hmm. credible ones. And and I think he and my grandfather probably had a conversation about my grandfather's experience Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and so um, I think that's where he got that from and he and I would. Would talk about it when i was you know 11 12 years old and i would say uh uh dad so dad would you if, if if one landed there one landed out in the field behind our house what would you do would you go go up to it he said yeah i would i would now my dad <clears throat> wasn't a bullshitter mm-hmm. he was a paratrooper in world war ii mm-hmm. and he had uh Bronze stars, two bronze stars, and purple hearts, and he'd been through a lot mm-hmm. um and so uh he was no nonsense kind of guy, and he just wouldn't lead me on like that and i, I believed him, I believed that he would do that, mm-hmm. you know, and um uh, I got in, in in inspired by it, I think at an early age and and uh thought, wow, you know um if it's true, it's really holy cow, mm-hmm. wow. Really amazing, and the and I I started reading a little bit of the books he had, and uh, um, I don't know if it was Major Kehoe or Jesse Marcel or somebody I forget the the authors now, but they were credible authors, yeah. and uh, they had no reason real reason to make things up like that because mm-hmm. it would hurt their
0: their careers and so they were they were at risk and hurting themselves. Yeah. You know, when I was 10 years old, uh, in the mid-50s, I was also reading all the UFO books I could find in the library. And I remember as a 10-year-old child, I wrote a letter to Donald Menzel at Harvard University, and he wrote (laughs) back to me to assure me that there was nothing to any of this. Yeah. Well, so much for experts, right? Yeah. 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 So, I guess the UFOs were in the air and it's wonderful you could discuss it with your father. I was always a kind of an explorer kid, mm-hmm.
1: you know, and and that was, he was as an adult interested in, in anything that was over the hill. What, what's on the other side? Mm-hmm. You know, let's go check this out or whatever. And um, so, I was just used to that way of thinking, mm-hmm. you know. You know, why have a closed mind about anything? Why, <clears throat> why not look at all the evidence you can? And I have faith, but I have more faith in evidence, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and I want to believe certain things like everybody does. You know, you want to believe certain things. <clears throat> but um, I believe there's a, there's a God force, a supreme force, not based on faith on, of Scripture or what I'm told, and my mother was a very religious woman, and so was my grandmother. But I have more faith if I can have evidence mm-hmm. that I can see as tangible and really is logical and and it's it's a huge, it's abundant, right? Mm -hmm. I love that. That, Okay, now take it and go somewhere with it.
0: And and actually Mm -hmm. consciousness research and even an area as uh, ephemeral as life after death, there are mountains of evidence. Yes, absolutely huge. Huge. Well, I gather at the same time in your childhood you were also being inspired by the space program. Yeah, well, Sputnik was uh, Sputnik, whatever. It was 57, Mm -hmm.
1: Right. And the worry was the Russians had more throw capacity than we did, yeah. and so that was like, oh my gosh, we can have an ICBM land in our country, and so uh, with a nuclear bomb, <clears throat> and um, uh, so <clears throat> I, boy, the landing on the moon was was amazing to watch that, and Walter Cronkite uh, got all teary eyed like everybody did, but at that time because it was so such an emotional achievement. And it was for the human race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Americans did it. Yeah. Americans, that was a time Americans really had the right stuff, not only to, to really help win World War II, but to also get into something that's, that's not political, like space, mm-hmm. and actually demonstrate that kind of an achievement. And, uh, and have, you know, those, those images of those guys walking on the moon was just, just really, amazing to see it
0: in real time i presume that maybe the the inspiration that led you to build an aerospace company uh, uh, began around then yeah i was uh i had a little workshop
1: in a little part of the attic where i was playing around with things to kind of you know little electronic kind of stuff make believe kind of things and maybe some of it wasn't and and um i uh I would I fantasized about well maybe someday I can actually have a shop a real a real shop or something large where I can be in doing some kind of industrious activity
2: mm-hmm.
1: and didn't know how mm-hmm. and uh money was always relevant anyway but how, how you you don't even know how you're ever going to get it the space seeds were planted there and then I was <clears throat> lucky enough to embark on that adventure by itself which was a really interesting process before I actually built my buildings because um, you're having to I, I was my own general contractor and design things and the buildings and and also I experimented with buying interest small interests into some other companies and realize I didn't want to get into rocketry a lot of people were getting into that but they weren't getting into habitats mm-hmm. and the space thing
0: was uh, and still is a, a, a real passion. We're we're going to have another interview where we'll go into that in much okay. greater depth. In a way, we're jumping ahead of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. But the next episode that's worth talking about would be in the 1980s when you began engaging in your own private research on uh, UFO experiencers, contactees, and uh, witnesses of UFO sightings.
1: I had the the, the time to really take up a, a literature study so in order to understand what people are talking about. The cases, the who, the where, the when, the how type of things. So <clears throat> I read every book I could get on my hold of that was credible. On psi and UFOs, Mm -hmm. and I read a book a week for a a year, a book a week,
0: and I'm working full time. I I assume at that point in your life, you're well established in uh, the real estate market. Well, yeah, there was no COVID,
1: so I'm working every day. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, we never did stop during COVID anyway. We never did. So the research was really important. Mm-hmm. To be able to understand, and the reading was really important. And then I did interviews, mm-hmm. uh, and I wanted to hear personal testimony, yes. you know, like like you're doing. And I wanted to hear that. And so I interviewed about 235 people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Someone would say, "Shut off the tape recorder." Nobody knows what I'm going to be telling you, you know. And I, I'd have a, a yellow pad, and I would I would take my notes, and and if I didn't have a tape recorder,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and <clears throat> these were in your face. Encounters mm-hmm. by these people. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> these were uh, all different kinds of, of really uh, in-your-face kinds of, of uh, experiences that these people had. And how did you find them? Some of it was a snowball effect. Um, I would talk to somebody and then ask them if they knew of anybody else, mm-hmm. and so and then ask those people. So it kind of spread like that. Mm-hmm. I also realized that there was a a, a locus, a, a center of activity in Nevada, out by, in, in little towns that we have outside of Las Vegas called Caliente, Pioche, and Panaca. And it's just off of the test site, a little ways off the uh, S4 area. Those people, that was a goldmine of stories, people in those towns. Um, I remember talking to, to an owner of a cafe and uh, one of her staff, and they had been sitting outside at night, and they were watching this football stadium-size object, like really close to the ground, maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred feet off the ground, really close, drifting across Caliente. And what made that so fascinating was a year later, I'm in, I'm interviewing a minister, I think it was Baptist minister, and he and his wife had come out of eating, and I think they were with another couple. And they look up in the sky, and they see the exact same thing from a different location. Mm -hmm. And that helped clarify something that the people told me that they mistook for appendages on the craft, but they weren't. They were some type of planes that were escorting this huge, huge structure. Mm -hmm. So that was really an interesting investigation for me, because I confirmed it a whole year later. From people with a different that were credible, mm-hmm. I mean, who wouldn't believe a Baptist minister, you know? And uh, so there were credible people, multiple witnesses, mm-hmm. and, and I had did a multiple at the at the initial. So those kinds of of uh, stories were were really interesting. Now you said planes, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah there, you appear be, there appeared to be some kind of jets that were escorting. Uh, there there wasn't much noise though. There wasn't any, they, they didn't, I don't remember them saying that there was a huge rumble of any kind. A lot of noise. I don't remember anything like that. Um, the, this, this thing was gigantic in the sky and it was being escorted where the people thought these lights mm-hmm. were appendages on some kind of bars or tubes coming out very long and with, with lights on them for some reason. Well, it turned out from the other perspective, they were aircraft,
2: mm-hmm.
1: is what they were, you know. So, uh, lights from the aircraft.
0: Well, the implication being that the, that the large object was not human, but the aircraft were.
1: Maybe, yes or no, you don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. In that kind of context, you really you have so little information. You don't know who's making the the big giant craft and who's making the planes or the, whatever the escorts are. Right. Whether they're in fact even they are planes, there are planes. maybe there's some other kind of. UFO, you know, that's made to, to mimic because you can have UFOs in any shape you can think of,
0: any, any kind of shape you can imagine, you know, so. Well, at the same time, you're doing very well in uh, the real estate business. You've opened up a hotel business, the uh, budget suites i presume so we 're not a hotel
1: no no we 've never been a motel we 've never been a hotel okay. <clears throat> because those income streams are not reliable enough mm-hmm. for me okay. i 've owned I built and operated motels, mm-hmm. uh, maybe three or four, and I built a small little hotel mm-hmm. at one time <clears throat> and uh, but the income streams are not reliable enough, so i 've been in the apartment business and I accidentally picked that up from my grandfather mm-hmm. living next door because he converted four horse stalls into studio apartments. Mm-hmm. He had a little apartment behind his garage and he had another separate little house where when um uh my mother was pregnant my dad was away at at uh, in World War II um that's where we stayed mm-hmm. and actually i was born and then that's where we lived until he came home mm-hmm. you know in in 45 i was born in 44 and um so my fa- my grandfather was in the apartment business uh-huh. and i learned a couple really important things three you can rent small places but they better be clean and and, and it helps if they're already furnished right mm-hmm. and um you better be there to collect the rent And if you have a vacancy, it better look good and you better be there to show it, right? So no screwing around. So I learned that at a
0: young age from watching him with his little, his apartments. Now, I don't remember where I heard this. Um, so you could tell me if I'm wrong, but somewhere I heard that you had the ambition to create an aerospace company and you knew that you'd need a lot of money to do that and you went into the apartment business with the idea of earning enough money to create an aerospace company, which I guess is what you did do.
1: No, it
0: was for survival reasons.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, So, I, uh, I bounced around in college. I went up to UNR I went to Southern Nevada University. I went to Orange Coast College. And then I found somebody that would keep me. That was ASU. Mm-hmm. So I spent three and a half years at Arizona State University. So I'm a sun devil. <laughs> and uh, so during all that, I wound up uh, eventually getting married. Mm-hmm. And we had a baby and a little boy. And um, so, and then she's pregnant again as I'm graduating. Mm-hmm. She's pregnant again. And... I have a, a Chevy that's paid for and we had $1,000 and mostly that was save money. We saved from wedding gifts mm-hmm. that we, that we got, you know, pass the hat around or whatever. And, um, so I got a broker's license and, um, started working for a, a brokerage company and didn't sell much. And, um, so I thought, well, I'll just go all in. And uh, so I opened up my own office and um, uh, I had a couple of salesmen. And <clears throat> I'm about twenty, twenty-three, twenty-four 23, 24 years old mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, I started buying property. Uh, a fourplex and a house was my first deal with no money down, very, mm-hmm. really, very little money. Mm-hmm. And a couple of deals were nothing mm-hmm. you know, and but I had to put myself in the seller 's shoes mm-hmm. because if I would take the deal it 's worth presenting it and i I sincerely on my propositions felt that if I were in the same shoes, i would by God, I would go ahead and take the deal mm-hmm. I would take the deal, so I began accumulating a portfolio of these things for a financial statement. Mm-hmm and uh, so mainly they all cash flowed they have positive net incomes Mm -hmm. and so that's how I got into the apartment business um, because I had a family to feed and I wasn't making it as a real estate salesman uh, well enough it was not it was not dependable enough income but the apartment business obviously worked out well well I a period of time I got a general contractors license and uh, I built uh, 15,000 apartments for my own portfolio um, and I began to buy other people's apartments. I bought 8,000 units <clears throat> that were other, belonged to banks mm-hmm. that they had gotten from, in foreclosure and, and uh, you know, maybe blocks of 3,000 at a time or 2,400 at a time mm-hmm. you know, and um, I got interested in a couple of banks mm-hmm. kind of thing um, <clears throat> so I I <clears throat> I probably in my subconscious wanted to do something in science, mm-hmm. right? Not knowing exactly how, when, but it takes money, yeah. right? It takes more than, than it takes to feed a family, right? Yeah. So, um, and I, I, uh, was financially responsible in not having a high style of living. Mm-hmm. We lived off about 10% of the net after tax income Mm
2: -hmm.
1: it's what we lived off of so that there was a large amount to do something with right and um so eventually uh that was the aerospace
0: and it uh it's a big consumer Well, and I gather prior prior to building the aerospace company, you had founded the National Institute of Discovery Science, NIDS. After Mm -hmm. you had done a a year's worth of very serious interviewing of contactees and reading the available literature, that's when you founded NIDS. Yeah. Yeah, I managed to to meet a lot of the great researchers.
1: um you know john mack uh i i supported him in some of his research and bud hopkins uh dave jacobs uh, uh a lot of the famous researchers and um and others mm-hmm. and uh, they were really quality um, people in the in the in the whole field of inquiry and they 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 uh have been around the block so much and been involved in so many things so i was i sponsored everything crop circles cattle mutilations and oh boy they can be really foul you know uh like and so and uh um sat at a lot of regressive hypnosis sessions writing out questions uh where you have somebody that may have been an abductee Mm -hmm. you know doing that kind of thing of course uh, looking at a lot of photographs um, looking at uh, doing forensics on uh, materials extracted from different places and so on. Usually, if anybody has anything, what well, people say, well, you know, what, what, you, you, did you find? Did you come across something? Well, it, the 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 question is is silly because the if you have if you ever have anything that's that's really more than just a piece of material. You're not going to say anybody that I don't have anything, but you're not going to say to anybody that you do because it could be confiscated.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, it depends on the on the the pedigree of where how you acquired it and who also had it, and at one time was it the federal government's. So if at one time the federal government's all of a sudden you have it, and now you're the bullseye, right? On trying to extract it from you, right? And um, and so, in fact, that's why. The government has very little. Mm-hmm. It's corporations that do, and because the FOIA doesn't work with corporations,
0: that, that's the main reason. So, meaning the Freedom of Information Act.:
1: Yeah, yeah. And so in uh, a lot of people in government, uh, I mean 99 and a half percent know nothing, mm-hmm. and that runs clear up in, in some cases, the President of the United States. Because that's on a need-to-know basis, and what can they contribute to, and why should they know? Just because they're an elected official. That that subject is so huge and consequential
0: that um, you can't always trust just an elected official. I'm under the impression that most government officials are not capable of digesting material that is so bizarre and complex. Well, even even uh, the
1: very very few companies that have any have a very difficult time um, being able to uh, back engineer anything. Very
0: difficult time, and a lot of it may be tied to consciousness. So, at this point uh, in our discussion, you founded NIDs in the nineteen nineties, as I yeah. recall. Came across a number of different people.
1: I, I had sponsored a radio program for about nine months, mm-hmm. Art Bell Show, and we called it Area 2000. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he's like George Knapp, you know, he has a, an amazing, <clears throat> low, deep, deep baritone voice, and he was, he was a great guy, uh, as is George. I was helped in finding hosts or guests, mm-hmm. uh, for <clears throat> the host to, for, for, uh, Bell to interview uh, mm-hmm. by John Alexander. Mm-hmm. So he helped me. I knew some people, yeah. but he knew a lot of people yeah. too. And so, so we, we got the guests there mm-hmm. and, uh, Art would interview them. And so I did that about nine months and then I stopped. It just <clears throat> got to be, um, interfering with other things I had going on. And then he syndic- he, started, he syndicated it. And I think that was the precursor. To coast to coast, mm-hmm.
0: his syndication evolved into into that later, you know, which makes you a very seminal figure in in the, uh, the development of this. The Art Bell show became huge.
1: Well, <clears throat> yeah, but I I kind of was just like a little a little injection, yeah, of uh, right at the beginning. right, yeah, and but basically it was him, yeah, and the way he could
0: he could handle it and everything and and uh, it was him. And Nids ran for a number of years, and you closed it down as, as your aerospace business was building. We really had some amazing
1: folks on the on the science advisory board. Yeah. I think it grew at one point to almost twenty six people. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. um, we uh, and we undertook two impossible challenges. And that's why we had to make a choice at one point. So we had a a final, we had to come to Jesus and try and make a choice because it was either UFOs or survival of permanent bodily death. Mm -hmm. So the only, the, the hallmarks of mankind's two greatest questions of all time, other than God force. And Ian Stevenson was on our board and, and uh, Bruce Grayson, Emily Cook, uh people you know mm-hmm. were on our board, Jessica Utz. They were they were predisposed to the survival topic, obviously. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know. And I had guys uh I had uh, two astronauts on the board, I had I had one or two people from CIA, I had uh people that were medical practitioners. Um, psychologist uh a one or two star air force general um, and everybody was and, and people the people from los alamos were were great they had everybody had a personal reason if if not because they saw something that defied explanation and conventional physics or whatever they had a close family member that did. Mm-hmm. So they had a vested interest in it. It was during that time I bought the Skinwalker Ranch mm-hmm. as a living laboratory. Yeah. You know, which we owned for twenty years. And um and again, that wasn't to <clears throat> publicize. Uh, George and, and Colin Kelleher and George Knapp wrote a, a book on that, and I played no role in that book. I um that wasn't the purpose for me of, of buying the ranch or anything to Publicize it or anything. I can understand why they did you were interested in the research not the publicity <laughs> interested in the science Absolutely. Yeah, the research and the, and the consequences of what was going on and peripherally with all the other ranches in the UNA Basin mm-hmm. it Wasn't just a skinwalker location.
2: Yeah.
1: that's that's a whole uh, multitude of stories and and um, cause We all took things home with us mm-hmm. um and our and our government program, I mean, that, that 20 years is full of all kinds of, of things. And ultimately, finally, our program manager wrote his own book, Skinwalker in the Pentagon or something like that. And and uh, it was never a tip to us. It was OSAP was our program. That OSAP and uh, Jim Lekaski was the only program manager. Uh, OSAP was what it, we always were referred to.
0: It was, you could say, it was an outgrowth of NIDs, but NIDs had already closed down, if I understand correctly. No, I think we had a period of time where the
1: Skinwalker was active because Terry Sherman came to our meetings. And gave a lecture. The original owner of the ranch, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, he was an owner for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Myers, I think, was or other owners that maybe for thirty five, forty years owned the ranch prior to, to Terry. And and uh, so we had people from the Uinta Basin, um, Terry Sherman, and some other folks come and 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 uh, I think a deputy sheriff uh, and and give us some talks mm-hmm. to the NIDs group. Mm-hmm. And, um, Harry was there a couple of times. Senator Reed. Senator Reed was there a yeah. couple of times. He had a, he had a real interest in the subject. Mm-hmm. And, um, he took it very seriously. And as did, uh, Senator Inouye and Senator Ted Stevens. Mm-hmm. Ten, Senator Stevens had his own personal sighting mm-hmm. that was quite amazing. When you have something personal happen to you, you have a vested interest, right? You got you got skin in the game. You have something that uh, that grabs you, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, that was that was what was neat is that everybody we were all rowing the same damn direction. Mm-hmm. We were and we had to bifurcate our study, unfortunately, because we couldn't handle UFOs and survival all at the same time.
0: We were we were we were drowning.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We were drowning. Around that same time, you had set up a consciousness studies academic program in UNLV yeah yeah uh,
1: dr. Raymond Moody mm-hmm. he was he was uh, we had uh, uh, Charles, Tart, Charles Tart and was Dean was Radin had been there well Dean Radin was worked under under uh, Raymond oh Dean came in he was he was uh, Raymond's assistant mm-hmm. and Dean uh, uh, was a faculty member. Uh, for us, mm-hmm. Raymond was to do research and go ahead and write books yeah. and to teach. Yeah. And and so we lasted for about, I don't know, maybe four years or mm-hmm. something. and um,
0: And then we moved on. I'm under the impression I moved to Las Vegas in 2001 from the San Francisco Bay Area got to know Raymond Moody. He's the one who first brought me to Las Vegas. I spoke uh, for his class at, at the Consciousness Studies program. And then a few years later, uh, everything got closed down. NIDS got closed down. The program at UNLV got closed down. And I'm under the impression that it's because you wanted to devote all of your focus to the aerospace business.
1: That was an endeavor that uh, was all-consuming if you're going to try and do it right and really take it serious. <clears throat> and you talk about this, you know, we're going to be talking in more depth about this subject, but um, after looking at other companies and buying into some other companies and, uh, and then stumbling upon uh, story. I think I, I initially I, I discovered the the existence of expandable technologies from a story about how Congress had cut NASA's program. The ISS, the International Space Station, was just in its very early formative stage of of development, and we we didn't know anything about habitats. I don't mean Bigelow. I mean NASA. Right. We didn't have any. The Russians did. Okay. The Russians did. They had the Almaz, which was, uh, in 1970, 72, was a two man spacecraft. I think they launched one. I saw this, the other one that was a Hangar Queen, Mm -hmm. which I think they were willing to sell me at the time. Uh, this was back in 2002 when Mm we, first time we went over, um, looking for hardware and stuff. And, um, and, and so, um, Congress wanted NASA's exclusive focus to be on the ISS, and not monkey around with something silly like an expandable habitat, you know, and um, and all the early astronauts couldn't understand what the hell you need all this room for. Because these are guys that flew in Mercury or some other little cramped kind of thing, you know, where you couldn't squeeze in a small cat. You know, it was they were right there in this thing because they're used to flying fighter jets, these guys. The Mercury 7 and all. I mean, these guys uh, talk about guts, right? They were all one of a kind, you know. Just, just, uh, so they're thinking, oh, what are you going to do with all this room? Well, there are really good reasons why you need it. But... Um, so NASA, so uh, NASA's program got cut. They had spent 180 million dollars by that time, mm-hmm. and they had nothing to show for it. nine They had no launches. They didn't have They not just didn't have any launches. They had no structures other than really, really crude mock-ups. Mm-hmm. You know, that that didn't perform. Like you know, you you test to for duration of holding gas and how much what's your leak rate going to be or what what what's your final you know, part of rupture when, how much pressure can for for destruction what can you take mm-hmm. you know full scale not the small scale you know but they had they had no successes in anything it was so embryonic yeah. and uh their their uh, all their architecture everything bulkheads lingerons, everything the material itself the the uh um the layer of shields, the shields that you put on, mm-hmm. you know, not just the air barrier restraint layers, but the shields are really important and other kinds of things. I'll get into the story later, yeah. how we stumbled into it. But never was there a handbook, never was there one dollar from NASA to help us. It was the other way around. And so we were flying by
0: our shorts. We were mm-hmm. by the seat of our pants. In other words, you acquired that tech- undeveloped technology from NASA yeah, yeah, and that that became the kernel of the Bigelow aerospace company absolutely, yeah,
1: on the condition I
0: spent forty million dollars,
1: oh. and there was nothing in their patents yeah. i have I have twenty nine of my own patents,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, <clears throat> to do with habitats, enclosures and and other kinds of features to 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 habitats we didn't we they had two basic patents. They really didn't describe much of anything,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. So we, we we had access to those, but we didn't get a handbook. Here's here's how you do this, or, or by the way, here's all of the data on on how all of our test results on whatever we did test, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, and so we didn't get any help at all. It was not, it was kind of in one way. I can get into that a little bit yeah. later. Yeah. Almost the reverse. Mm-hmm. We were
0: we were pushing.
1: Mm-hmm to open the door that didn't want to be opened.
0: And what we haven't talked about, really, is the the whole question of uh, the paranormal in general during your childhood, other than the dream uh, that you had. Were there any other uh, episodes from your childhood that awakened an interest in uh, paranormal experiences? It took me 10 years to get over my dad's death.
1: Mm There was no funeral, and there was no closure, and it was instantaneous uh, because I was called and told that your father's dead, you know, from my mother. Um, It took me 10 years to get over those dreams, very lucid dreams type, you know. So, but I I can't say I had anything that I would chalk up to um, my grandmother once Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, when I was a kid uh we 're all sitting at their house, and she 's carrying a a platter of uh, no, or a, um, <clears throat> a tray of something like like the dish that held a whole bunch of mashed potatoes and you know and she 's carrying it over and we're she 's coming to the table we 're all sat, sat there and she 's like this, and it flies out of her hands and goes up against the wall. What's that? I I, I don't know. That was weird. I mean, I'm just, you asked me for like weird things. Okay. That comes to mind. Sure. You know, that's the last I knew mashed potatoes are not supposed to do that. Right? But these did. Mm -hmm. You know, so, um, Maybe other ones will come to mind, but that
0: that happened well, one of the things you did say is that the board of directors of NIDS were basically all people who had, had had one experience or another. They were all yeah. rowing in the same direction oh, yeah. on the same page, and you were the one who pulled that board together, yeah, yeah, it was fun mm-hmm.
1: it was it was a it was a pleasure, it was a gift to be able to have that kind of membership, those quality people. Because those backgrounds were amazing. Yeah. You know, in fact, you can have, you know, out-of-body experiences induced artificially. Mm-hmm. And I, I learned that from the Air Force General. Oh. Yeah. Well, by overdoing centrifuge. Yeah. Okay. So you get into G-lock, right, at about seven, seven and a half with no other apparatus. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to hold your breath and and, and breathe before passing out. Mm-hmm. So we had videos that he would show at around seven... Seven point two or three, boom! Their heads nodding down, they go. Yeah. You know, they're sitting in a in a in a centrifuge. So, um, so his personal experience mm-hmm. was that he had an out of body experience he couldn't explain. That particular day, he did twelve. They now have rules where you can't do more than three, mm-hmm. is what I re- recall yeah. him saying. Um, but he had done twelve. He gets out of the capsule, a centrifuge, you know, and he's not in his body anymore. His body is still in the process of getting out and stepping onto to the platform. Mm-hmm. And But he's up above his body and he's watching himself walk down the hallway. He's aware of what's going on in rooms alongside this hallway. Mm-hmm. He's aware of people. He's hearing conversations and so forth. In as, but he shouldn't be able to hear. He has an awareness that's not a normal human awareness because of this out of body experience. That's yeah. not because he almost died. This is artificial induced, mm-hmm. artificially induced. He goes all the way down the end of the hallway where his office is. Opens the door, and, and his body opens the door. He goes right through the walls. <laughs> okay, he's up and like in the ceiling. Yeah. You know. And the body opens the door, closes it. The body walks around to his desk. And as soon as the body sat in the chair, he slammed into his body. He came back into mm-hmm. his body. His consciousness did. So there's, that's one example, one way I know of where you can artificially induce out-of-body experiences
0: without using drugs. That's quite amazing. I'd never heard that story before. Kind of unique, I guess. But so you pulled together a, a group of people, leading figures in science and in government to explore. Well, discovery science can mean many things, but certainly the paranormal was yeah. your main focus at that well, we point. we uh, <clears throat>
1: guest speakers. Yeah. John Mack was a guest speaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd have people from the sheriff's department, uh, in the Uinta Basin. In fact, most of our, uh, really interesting stuff came from deputy sheriffs and, and, and uh you know police that that we we gather information from, BIA officers, Bureau of Indian Affairs officers. Um but the boy, some of the stories you you want to stay grounded yeah. in the real world, and in my case it was business endeavors, aerospace endeavors and whatever, yeah. you know, because you're dealing in a whole nother reality, right? And you don't want to let that other reality start to seduce you mm-hmm. and compromise your thinking mm-hmm. and fuzzy up what what you have to live in is this world yeah. this this world this dimension is what we're in so far yeah. right and you know I want, I'm it's interesting to get to where we talk about other dimensions right we'll get into that right yeah 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 and uh, but you got to stay grounded mm-hmm. and. Um, so it was just such a pleasure to to deal with all those kinds of people mm-hmm. um that were you know they were folks that had been career people in the intelligence agencies. Intelligence. So we worked for the DIA. We were card-carrying members of the Defense Intelligence Agency as a contractor. Oh. Right? So in in the OSAP program. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's that's DIA. We were we were just contractors.
0: Yeah, but, no, but it, to be clear, the OSAP, the Advanced Aerospace Weapons Systems Application Program, if I understand correctly, was uh Instituted under the auspices of the Bigelow Aerospace Corporation. There was there was a uh, a down select mm-hmm. for
1: that. Uh, we had advantages other companies didn't have. Yeah. So we were that's why we were selected. Right. We had the living laboratory of the Skinwalker Ranch. Mm-hmm. Um, we already had a history of accumulating uh, the best uh, science uh, people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Jacques Vallée was on our board. And the best science people in the UFO field that there, 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 there were at the time in the United States. Um, and so we had and relationships overseas in Brazil and Europe, uh, connections. So we were able to have analyses done um, at certain labs that uh, I can't mention. Even I don't want. Even to this day, it's probably silly. Um, but we could we could have things analyzed, and uh, and so chain of custody was really important. And um, but it was I was blessed to be able to have
0: a room full of people like that. Well, I'm a little confused because many of those people you're referring to were on the board of NIDs the National Institute of Discovery Science. At some point NIDS closed and OSAP was initiated. Was there an overlap between the two? No, actually
1: I think we had I didn't sell the ranch until 2017. I owned it about 20 years so I think we had I, I initially bought it maybe in 1996, 97 kind of mm-hmm. time frame. Yeah. And NIDS was ongoing then mm-hmm. because we'd have these people come and give us lectures from the Winter Basin people like I mentioned. Right. And then um, we had already been doing a lot of, <clears throat> without the OSSAP program, we were already uh, I was supporting uh, research on to cattle mutilations and crop circles and other kinds of field um, crash retrieval cases uh, like I did uh, I sponsored um, old <clears throat> New Brunswick the the, the fellow um, UFO researcher, he's passed over now, uh, Stan Friedman mm. Stan Friedman yeah. uh, that was a, a fun uh, ca- crash retrieval case yes. and one with Bud Hopkins mm-hmm. in, uh, in uh, New Mexico in, uh Little town St. Marie or something like that. That was a really interesting case, by the way, of something that happened in the sixties. And uh uh and we were able to talk to people <clears throat> that um like the dispatcher and other people and some other ones just kinda of disappeared. Yeah. You know, but that was really interesting too. But um so I the Offset program, I think you're right, I think NIDS had closed by that time.
0: And to be specific, NIDS didn't close except for the fact that you closed it. Right. It was your decision. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah, it was. And I
1: I can remember that we we kind of... I, I think there was a consensus that we needed to be moving on and... There was kind of one conclusion I had come to. Well, there was a couple of things that I was talking to people about during the NIS during that time. The the graph I've told you about, the dichotomy between the incongruity of mankind. Mm-hmm. Uh if you're to graph mankind's appreciation, that's growth, I mean, in spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, concurrent with mankind's appreciation and growth of technology, Mm -hmm. Uh, not only do those lines never meet, the spirituality just kind of bumps along the bottom, Mm -hmm. up and down, up and down, up and down. And the technological one uh, slopes and starts to go vertical and then starts to go hypersonic. You know, you're jumping, Mm -hmm. right? And that I thought, wow, wow. And this is I'm going back twenty five years mm-hmm. and I thought, oh gosh, and I talked to a couple of folks about that and are on our board and and they said, Oh yeah, um that is a it's gonna be a huge problem because <clears throat> we could be the Klingons. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. We don't have the right stuff mm-hmm. to properly control the technological advances that, that we can create. Mm-hmm. Um, too much reptilian brainstem, <laughs> you know, in us and uh so that was that was one thing that that was that was important on stuff
0: well so I'm under the impression what you're saying is that you felt it wasn't a good idea to keep progressing to explore the paranormal until humankind was more spiritually advanced
1: well, the, well, the aerospace thing kind of took over because mm-hmm. there was the second thing <clears throat> that I felt was quite likely mm-hmm. besides consciousness controlling craft yes. and you're having a tough time back in entering, besides not having the right materials. Mm-hmm. Well, I felt that uh, we. where is it that we we don't have any industry in orbit? Mm-hmm. So before the aerospace company was really uh, going much at all um, and I was kind of maybe in the late 90s investigating getting into it but not knowing, I, I thought well what if amalgams and other kinds of composites were were uh, um, birthed in a microgravity environment right. and uh, we don't have any of that yeah. you know so we're not able to get uh, eighty layers uh, in in a you know in a, <clears throat> a tenth of a millimeter mm-hmm. strata and 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 which we couldn't duplicate yeah. or the fineness or the purity of some
0: some materials, right? That we couldn't duplicate. And, and if I understand correctly, what you're referring to are uh, objects that you had collected while you were working with NIDS that appeared according to reports that these things may have fallen off UFOs and they were examined in laboratories and and they were composites of this sort. Basically there was a researcher that uh, had extractions of uh, he would extract anomalous objects from people yeah,
2: right.
0: and we would get those tested yeah. Yeah. I mean I know Jacques Vallée had a collection of such objects and Hale Putoff has yeah. published yeah. some analyses of right. these objects right. my f-
1: feeling still is mm-hmm. that if until we get a robust uh, really decently sized and capable laboratory in space not uh, not not just a little uh, things that you fool around with on the ISF, but something substantial, something where you can really, um, have things occur serendipitously, which is about half of all things occur because of that. Mm-hmm. You know, the things that just happen to happen. Um, uh, we're never really gonna know how certain kinds of materials are acquired, yeah. given the, the, uh, the, the menu, uh, the periodic table that we, that we're dealing with, right? So, um, and, and maybe where
0: ours is is not complete as it is. Well, now, this is interesting because it gives me an, a new insight. It, it seems as if one of the motivations then for building these inflatable habitats that could uh, be placed in orbit or even further out in the Lagrange points uh, is to uh, set up laboratories. Rather large scale laboratories for doing things that can only be done in a zero gravity environment, but to some degree was inspired by the idea that certain composite um, metals uh, were manufactured this way and were associated with UFOs. So, yeah, but it's still speculation, and
1: the fact is, you got to make money first right? So you have to go down through the parochial ways, uh, tourism and other kinds of things, uh, maybe movie industry, uh, whatever. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, new kinds of uh, sake uh, that's flown in space because the Japanese did a lot of that, you know, where the yeast is is grown there in orbit and they put it in the sake and then they can sell, uh, sell it by the ton. Uh-huh. You have to have some kind of business concepts, right? So we had a lot of those different business concepts, too. And um, And then at some point, you can say, okay, let's go do a lab that nobody has. Mm -hmm. Let's do a big friggin' lab. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Right? A big friggin' lab. And maybe you don't want some of those labs occupied. Because
0: you want to be able to destroy the lab if you have to. This is getting very interesting, Robert, but I know we've we've covered a lot of ground at this point and this may be a good stopping point, okay? For for the time being, right. I I think uh we we can summarize, I suppose, by saying that You began your career as a paranormal researcher with a very wide scope, looking at at many different things and an enormous curiosity. But underneath it all was a strong, I I would call it a pragmatic sense. You knew uh, what makes things work and what makes things not work. And supporting all of your work has has been a, uh, a sense of business a sense of running things in a business like manner so that you had positive cash flow
1: well yeah i'm an explorer and and i'm a Maverick explorer because i don't go down the traditional paths right and um i i think uh in the ufo topic personally i i probably spent more than anybody else has in this country on on that on that subject um but uh, it gives you back, Is it's not all a one-way, give, give, give kind of thing, because you're taking back the adventure,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's what you're rewarded with. The people you meet, the what-ifs, and it can lead you unto other kinds of things, that oh my gosh, all of it starts to fit together. It starts to all connect, which is a
0: really big deal. Well, I think this is a great introduction for viewers who want to understand the man and not just what little tidbits are available on 60 Minutes and other news accounts about who you are and what you've done. It's been a pleasure to sit with a godfather and and have this discussion. No, I think you're the godfather. (laughs) I'm I'm uh, not the godfather. <laughs> as amusing it as it is to picture myself as one, but Robert, thank you so much for this program and I want our viewers to know we plan several more conversations. This is just the beginning. Thank you very much. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. We just released issue number two of the New Thinking Allowed quarterly magazine. You can download a free copy at the New Thinking Allowed Foundation website, newthinkingallowed.org.